I'm going to begin with kind of a, an extended analogy tonight. My mind kind of works with, with analogies sometimes. Um, so I'll, I'll start by saying this coming Sunday is the vernal equinox. Vernal equinox is a, is a planet-wide event. Um, everywhere on the planet, there are 12 hours of sunlight and 12 hours of nighttime. Um, this equinox and the other equinox in, in autumn are the only two times that happens. Um, on Sunday, the, the two equinoxes are the only days when the sun rises perfectly due east and sets perfectly due west. Um, over the next six months in the northern hemisphere, there's going to be more daylight than nighttime. The nights are going to be shorter, the days are going to be longer. And as we move into summer, the points of rising and setting of the sun will move further and further to the north. So by the middle of summer, you'll, we'll be having these big wraparound, you know, the sun will rise in the northeast, wrap around to the southern sky, and then set in the northwest. This big wraparound experience, which is why the day is so long. Um, Sunday will be dawn at the North Pole. And for the next six months, the North Pole will experience 24 hours a day uninterrupted sunlight. It will also be dusk at the South Pole. And the South Pole will experience uh, six months of 24 hours a day uninterrupted nighttime. You can imagine how cold that gets. Um, so the equinox, among other things, is the first day of spring for us. For for ancient peoples, it, it was a big event. I mean, they some of the largest monuments, you know, Stonehenge and others, were built to to align with the the light of the equinox. Um, ancient people were deeply aware of it. Uh, so far as we can tell, in all ancient cultures, um, the equinox was the new year. It was the, the most sacred holiday of the year. It was Earth being reborn. Um, and really, uh, both uh, Pesach, Passover, and, and Easter are, as it were, more modern renditions of this, this ancient equinox holiday. Um, Incidentally, it was the Romans who got the bright idea to put the new year in the middle of winter. Um, now, what's fascinating to me is that we modern people, modern people are not very much aware of this. You know, like it may be printed on the calendar, equinox or first day of spring, and people might have some passing awareness or they heard it on the radio. It's the equinox today, that sort of thing. Um it's something that I think a lot of people, I think Sunday will come and go. A lot of people will not even know, you know, and certainly not many people have very strong opinions about it, you know. Now compare that to daylight savings time. Daylight saving time, which we experienced this past weekend, that's a game we play with ourselves. Nothing in the natural world changes, <laughs> you know, like the sun doesn't move in the sky, all we do is we change the clocks, basically. You know, we, we, we perform this game on ourselves. Um, and we're profoundly impacted by that. And people have all kinds of opinions. And people will love to argue about how they love daylight saving time, how they hate daylight saving time. There are all kinds of strong opinions you can get about that. 
Um, and that difference fascinates me. What fascinates me is, this is where we get to the analogical part, the game we play with ourselves is very emotionally impactful. So much so that we wind up ignoring the actual physical thing that happens in the world, the real thing that happens in the world. Um, And this analogy brought to mind what I would call the ego cage. That's what I'm calling, what I call this talk, the the topic, the ego cage. Um, All the ways that we get wrapped up in our own games, in our own thought patterns, in our own strategies for getting more pleasure, strategies for avoiding more pain, in our fantasy cycles, in our worry, um, you know, in this sort of internal echo room where we can hear ourselves very loud and we're not really paying attention to the outside world. And in a way, this is, a, you might say, a reframing of the Buddhist idea of dukkha. Um, The first noble truth, of course, is life is dukkha. Really, unenlightened life is dukkha. Um, And dukkha is sometimes translated as suffering, which which is not a a particularly good translation. It's a a sloppy one-word translation, basically. Um, and then, you know, sometimes then Buddhism sounds like the first noble truth is life is suffering as if Buddha is saying life is something horrible. And, you know, in fact, Buddhism is saying quite the opposite. Life is this glorious thing that we're missing, you know, because we're wrapped up in ourselves. Um, dukkha is one way to talk about dukkha is the dis-ease or the discomfort that we have because I want to pull pleasure toward me. I want to push fear and things that I'm averse to away from me, and I can't because pleasure and pain are always wrapped up with each other, you know. So part of it is just that raw discomfort, Um, but part of it is all the psychological gains, the conditioning, you know, the the strategies, and how can I strategize to get more of the good stuff and keep out the bad stuff, you know, like all that. Um, And ultimately, dukkha is about the way that we make this kind of bargain where we trade away our freedom and authenticity in an attempt to get more comfort. You know, and and there's ways I think we all do this. And it's always a bad bargain because we don't really get a whole lot of comfort from it, you know. But we trade away our our freedom and authenticity, you know. Um, You know, from this perspective, it's easy to see why the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have such compassion for all of us. And I think an important part of this, an important part of the ego cage in general, is this idea of freedom. And I think so often we naively rely on the feeling of freedom. Like, I feel free, I must be free, you know? And we know from experience, we we know from data, that's not reliable. You know, we know from data from anyone who is an addict, anyone who has an alcohol addiction, an addiction to a narcotic, 
I mean, so many of these people will say, yeah, I'm free. I could quit any time. I'm choosing to do this every time. And it may be drop-dead obvious to everyone else in their life, no, they're not free. They're completely hooked, you know. But they're persisting in this illusion that they're free. You know, and that's just the nature of an addiction. Um, you know, it's often said it's really a cliche the first step is admitting, the first step toward recovery is admitting that one has a problem. And, you know, of course, logically, it's the first step. You can't treat the problem unless you admit you have the problem. But it really is, um, it's an astonishingly courageous move for anyone in that position to admit they have a problem. You know, because it's really overcoming some of the, the most fundamental illusions that the mind creates to actually get to that place of, of seeing through them and saying, no, wait, I do have a problem, you know? And I think in an analogous way, you know, a lot of our growth happens when I reach a point where I realize, you know, I have a problem, <laughs> you know, with whatever delusion I've been, you know, nurturing for so long, and then suddenly I see through it and say, wait, I have a problem. I've been believing this deluded thing, you know. Um, freedom is, how can I say this? The objective, the, the subjective feeling it feels free is not a, is not a very good guide to what freedom actually is. Freedom is much more about, I would say, inner spaciousness. It's about a kind of place of equanimity where we're simply resting, where we have, where we create a certain amount of space, where desire, the you know, the clinging of desire, the the fear and aversion are are not quite touching me, and I can just rest in that place of equanimity. That's freedom, you know. Ultimately, freedom is not freedom to do whatever I want. The greatest freedom is the freedom to unfold who I am at my deepest level, you know. So I think I'll share the quote sheet at this point. First, I'll share it with the Zoomies. And then the Rimmies. First quote is from the Diamond Sutra. The Diamond Sutra is a is a Zen scripture. Um, I don't know why this um, has popped up all of a sudden. What? What? Um, no. What? Uh, you can just do stop share at the top. I don't know why it wanted to do that. Anyway, okay. Sorry about that. Uh, if you've never read the Diamond Sutra, I highly recommend it. It doesn't take very long to read, and it really is a classic. But this line from the Diamond Sutra, simply, true freedom is freedom from your own desires. 
Very simple, right? From Rumi. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Move outside the tangle of fear thinking. The entrance door to the sanctuary is inside of you. From Goethe. None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. This wonderful one from Dostoevsky. Often a man endures several years, submits and suffers the cruelish punishments, and then suddenly breaks out over some minute trifle, almost nothing at all. And it, it is funny, like the, you know, the thing, I mean, you look back over our lives, you know, the things that we suffer through, and sometimes the, 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 as it were, the straw that breaks the camel's back, or the thing that actually makes us wake up, it's something ridiculously small and trivial, you know, but that for whatever reason, that's the mo- the moment that we we start to wake up, and you know it. It's very funny. John Lubbock says the whole value of solitude depends on oneself. It may be a sanctuary or a prison, a haven of repose or a place of punishment, a heaven or a hell, as we ourselves make it. You know, and it just it's a it's a wonderful question. What is the quality of our solitude? You know, how does our solitude feel? And of course, it's a question that was um, uh, brought on us quite significantly through the whole shelter-in-place experience. John Lubbock says, the whole value... No, sorry, we did that one already. Zygmunt Freud, good old Freud, said, most people do not really want freedom because freedom involves responsibility, and most people are frightened of responsibility. That one is deep. Gurdjieff said, you are in prison. If you wish to get out of prison, the first thing you must do is realize that you are in prison. If you think you are free, you can't escape. Similar to Goethe's statement. Carl Jung said, your visions become clear when you can look into your own heart. Who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakes. This wonderful passage from The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Diet Vom. I have heard the key turn in the door once and turn once only. We think of the key each in his prison. Thinking of the key each confirms a prison. Psychologist Eric Fromm said, I believe that man must get rid of illusions that enslave and paralyze him. He must become aware of the reality inside and outside of him in order to create a world which needs no illusions. Freedom and independence can be achieved only when the chains of illusion are broken. You know, and it, it's a vulnerable question, you know, what illusions do we need? What illusions am I holding on to, you know? Viktor Frankl, who, who went through the, the horror of a concentration camp. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is the power to choose our response. Our res- in our response lies our growth and freedom. So again, that space, what I was talking about earlier, the spaciousness or equanimity, just the space between stimulus and response. Robert Aitken says, The Buddha and all his successors warn us against intellectual structures that confine us to an artificial environment and against concepts that smear over the living facts of things in themselves. That's such a powerful warning for this 
this head-centered culture, which likes to take a very head-centered approach to Buddhism. Kerouac said, To bow to the facts of life's sorrows and betrayals is to accept them, and from this deep gesture we discover all of life is workable. As we learn to bow, we discover that the heart holds more freedom and compassion than we could imagine. Thich Nhat Hanh said, Letting go gives us freedom, and freedom is the only condition for happiness. If in our heart we still cling to anything, anger, anxiety, or possessions, we cannot be free. You know, and it, it's always very interesting. What are we holding on to? And why are we holding on to it? Always wonderful questions. Buscaglia said, if we wish to free ourselves from enslavement, we must choose freedom and the responsibility this entails, echoing Freud's sentiment. Eric Pevernaglul said, let us evade the grueling imprisonment of our mental cage and invade the explosive power of love. Only by do- redirecting lost momentum to positive thinking can we re-strengthen the mold of our trust. I love that that image of the explosive power of love. David Jeremiah said, marriage can be either a classroom where people become wiser or better or a prison when people become resentful and bitter, you know, and really in in our own world, you know, that could be marriage or romantic relation in general. Jack Cornfield said, freedom is an urgent, beautiful, large responsibility and a natural consequence of being human. I love that way of saying it, both urgent and beautiful. You know. Stephen Redhead said, you create within your mind your own cages that confine you. David Icke said, the greatest prison people live in is the fear of what other people think. You know. And there, there's all kinds of fears like that that bind us. David White, he said this during a, a webinar that I attended last year. You know, he was talking at the time about the shelter-in-place experience. All of us feel as if we're in some kind of emotional or psychological imprisonment, even if it's just at the edges. Some of us feel completely imprisoned and are waiting for the world to go on. Throughout human history, there's been a long chronology of people who have been confined and who have taken that time actually to come down to another foundation and to emerge from their exile, from their imprisonment, braver and more articulate than they were before they were removed from the world. And certainly we think of of Nelson Mandela in our own time as someone who went through that process. Craig Slunsberg said, I would suggest that the prisons I incessantly create are designed not to lock me in, rather they are designed to lock the world out. The oddity is that either way, I'm a prisoner who has sentenced himself to a prison within which I do not belong. You know, and it is true that fear is, you know, fear of of all kinds of things. I always say fear really destroys the life it's trying to protect, you know because it creates a kind of prison. Peter Santos says, 
The spiritual freedom we seek cannot be found by grasping at, retreating to, or protecting our perceived safe spaces. Our freedom lies in remaining open continuously, not only to life's changes, but also to the divine light within ourselves and others. In Israel Moore, Ivivar said, Never say, I don't care. We're all looking up to you. Dare to break the fences that confine you. Make it happen. <laughs>